All right. Good morning, everybody. Hey, first of all, um, I know Pastor Gabe prayed about it, uh, prayed over this, but it is, today is Veterans Day, and this is a day that just means so much to me. I know at this, at this church specifically, we have so many veterans, and, and they and their families, um, they sacrifice and they give so much. They give so much of themselves to protect us, to keep us in a place where we have the freedom to where we can gather together like this. And, you know, today I'm going to be teaching about Jesus and the, and the things that he did to give us the ultimate freedom, right? But we wouldn't be able to exercise that freedom if it wasn't for the sacrifice that our veterans make. So if you, if you are here, I just want and I know this is going to be embarrassing to you, but if you are a, a veteran or a family member of one, could you just stand up for just one moment? Look at that. I just want to give you guys thanks. Thank you. Thank you for what you do. Thank your families for what you do. We, we honor your sacrifice in this place, and, and we, are, we are thankful. We are thankful for you. I asked you to do this so that I wouldn't be up here and start. <laughs> All right. Hey, um, Let's get, into, let's get into the message, because this is a great message, I think, just all about the freedom that we have in Christ. So if you haven't been here for a while, we are going through Acts. We're going through the book of Acts, and we're working our way through chapter by chapter. My heart is that by the time we're finished with this, you will have such a fantastic overview of the book of Acts, you won't, you won't have missed a thing. And so what we're doing is we're just literally going chapter by chapter, verse by verse, talking about what we're what is in the book of Acts. So this week, we're in actually chapter 15. Chapter 15 is called the Jerusalem Council. Sounds really exciting. You're all abuzz already, right? But we've gone through, okay, in, in Acts chapter 1, the Holy Spirit comes upon the disciples, giving them the, the Holy Spirit so that they can go forth and do what Jesus has called them to do. And then we go on through the rest of the chapters. We see, we see Stephen being stoned for his efforts. We see Philip going out and, and sharing the gospel with the Samaritans and starting this. We see Peter going out. We see Saul persecuting the church and then Saul converting and actually then sharing the gospel. Um, and then last week we talked about Paul and Barnabas actually going out on their first what's called the missionary journey where they travel around and they're actually sharing the gospel in that region, primarily with the Gentiles um, for the first time, that is their mission specifically to share the gospel with the Gentiles. And then, if you remember, at the end of that chapter, we end up, or they end up, uh, Paul and Barnabas end up in Antioch. They go back to Antioch, kind of their home church. And scripture says that the gospel was so well received, everybody was happy, things were going great, and, and it was just an exciting time for them. And they were spending time in Antioch teaching. So, that brings us to the message today. We're going to talk about the Jerusalem Council. Now, again, this seems like something that might not be super exciting, especially when you look at what the definition of a council is. Okay, in the context of Christianity, councils were held at irregular times, but whenever they were needed. And what it was was a way for all the various churches and various uh, cities and towns to get together and discuss 
discuss the word of God, discuss what they were to do with this new covenant of Jesus and basically make sure that they were on the same page. Because you find a church in Antioch, and then you find a church in Cilicia, and then you find a church in Ephesus, and you find these churches all over the place, and they didn't have like the internet like we have now, to where you can put something out there and everybody all over the world can read it and be on the same page. Okay, there they were learning and hearing of the gospel by these traveling missionaries. And what would happen is that they would hear the gospel, they would hear it accurately, and then over time, things would just morph. Some of their old ways, some of their old thoughts would come back in, right? And this is what kind of necessitates Paul and, and the, other, the other writers of the gospels writing these letters to say, hey, let's make sure we're on the same page. But once in a while, even, even more than that, they have to get together. Let's get all these leaders in the same room and let's hash out some of these details, okay? So that's in the context of this, a council... They would get together and they would talk about sometimes doctrinal issues, okay, some very hardcore theological issues. Sometimes it was just simple things like, when are we going to have Easter? What's the official date of Easter going to be? And then they would talk about things like, let's talk about the nature of Christ, his, his deity and then his human side. Let's, let's really make sure we're all on the same page as far as what that means. Let's talk about the Trinity. What does the Trinity really mean? And so they would take all this time to get together on the same page, make sure that, that the gospel was going out the way, that they, the, the way that it was relayed to them and the best way possible. So that's what these councils were for. So you had uh, the Council of Nicaea, okay? You had a couple different councils of Nicaea. Um, the Chalcedon uh, Council, um, you, you had all sorts, the Constantinople Council, Dozens and dozens of councils over the first, say, few hundred years, few hundred, few centuries of the church growing, it was necessary to get back together from time to time just to make sure that we all remained on the same page. And so what we're going to talk about today is the Jerusalem Council, which is the first of all these councils. And they got together in about 50, about the year 50 AD in Jerusalem, as the name sounds. And they just had one question. All these questions at these later councils that were really talking about kind of fine details, the Jerusalem council, they had one question. One question. And that question, I want to pose it to you, and the question that they dealt with at that time was, what must a man do to be saved? That was their question. Okay, we can talk about all these other details. Let's just focus in on this. What must a man do to be saved? And so I want to ask you guys, I want to ask for some feedback here. What does a man have to do to be saved? Repent and be baptized. What else? What's that? Acknowledge that Jesus is Lord. What else? Forgiveness of sins. What else? Okay, does it have anything to do with how often we go to church? Does it have anything to do with what we eat or what we drink or the amounts that we eat or drink? Does it have to do with how we get baptized, with how we do communion, whether you're a Raiders fan or not? I heard some yes. 
And that's debatable. We'll have to have our own council later <laughs> where we talk about that one. But we have, what do we have that they didn't have at this time? We have 2,000 years of hindsight. We have the entirety of the Word of God. We have the whole Word of God. We've got 2,000 years of scholarly debate and study and commentary and teaching and thought and leading from the Holy Spirit. We have all these things, and it ought to be really simple for us then. But we still have a lot of different answers. None of them are entirely wrong, but none of them are actually complete either. And so that's what the Jerusalem Council gets together. We're going to talk about this, and we're going to hash out what this means. And it was, a it was a necessary thing. Because for us, again, it seems easy. But put yourself in their shoes. Put yourself all the way back in the year 50. And you're in a church, the Church of Jerusalem specifically, but this growing church that's now called Christianity, by the way, instead of just the way as it was earlier, and it's growing. It's growing fast. It is magnetic. It is attractive, and people are coming to it, but you have two kinds of people in it. You have Gentiles who are just now coming to this new thing, and they're hearing what they hear from the apostles and from the disciples. They're hearing it directly from them. And they're accepting this, and they're saying, this sounds attractive. We are excited that we can be a part of this. We want this. Yes, we want this. But then you also have another group of people. And this other group of people are Jews by culture, Jews by generational. They've grown up in this Jewish culture. And the Jewish culture was very much centered around knowledge of and adherence to the law, right? So you've got these two different people. You've got the Gentiles hearing it, and all they're, what they're hearing is freedom. There is freedom. There is freedom. There is liberty. There is grace. It's not about what you do. You're justified through faith in Jesus. They're talking about all these things. And then you've got the other side saying, okay, Jesus is wonderful. We'll add him into our thing. He's our promised Messiah. Okay, we now are enlightened to that. We see that. But we're adding him into this culture of adherence to the law that we've been raised in. So you've got these two different types of people in the same room, and it starts to cause some problems. So the reason that Scripture spends a whole chapter talking about the Jerusalem Council and the reason that we're going to spend a weekend talking about it here is because at issue is the entire core concept of Christianity. Is it faith and justification and salvation through works or through freedom and grace in Jesus Christ? Which is it? And that's something that was very important for them to decide early on because that lies at the very heart of Christianity and what we do now. The freedoms that we have now were under fire then, and they were being discussed. So that's where they are. It's a never-ending conflict, right? If you struggle with knowing, okay, I have this friend, he drinks too much. This friend 
never goes to church. This friend does this and that. Is, is he really saved? Is he, does he have the same Christ in him that I have? Because I go to church all the time, and I read my Bible, and I pray, and I do all these things. So am I somehow a different tier of Christianity than him? It's something that we all struggle with, and if you do this, you're not alone. The early church struggled with this all the time, too. And that leads us to our very first scripture. So let's throw up that first one. Acts chapter 15, this is verses 1 and 2. Some men came down from Judea and began teaching the brethren, unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And when Paul and Barnabas had great dissension and debate with them, the brethren determined that Paul and Barnabas and some others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders concerning this issue. So let's go back to the, to the first verse. <clears throat> so if you remember, we ended up the last, the last teaching or the last chapter where we left off was that Paul and Barnabas were up in Antioch. And this church is growing, growing, growing. And they start running into some dissension, okay? Where it says right there, some men. Some men came down from Judea. First of all, just to, just to by the way, where it says came down from Judea. If you remember the map or if you can kind of picture in your head, Antioch is way up north. Okay, Judea is way down south. Jerusalem's up there sort of in the middle region. And it says came down. Well, we would think you went up since it's geographically, but it's, it's just by altitude, really. Jerusalem was kind of on a mountain, about 2,500 feet high, which there in that region, that's high. Jerusalem is kind of up there. Antioch is a port city, so they went down to this area. So that's why it says that. But some men began teaching the brethren. The brethren is a term that you see over and over again talking about those who had come to believe in Christ, okay? Believers in Christ. We just call them the brethren. The word calls them that. But the some men, this is the question right here. Who are the some men who came down from Judea? These men... There is, there's a term for them, and you've probably heard this before. You may have heard it before. It's been a long time since I had heard it in a while. And the term is Judaizer. You've heard the term Judaizers. What Judaizers are, Judaizers is a group of men who believe in Jesus, but there are also many of them are ex or current Pharisees. And the Pharisees get a bad rap, but you remember the Pharisees, they, their deal was we need to adhere to the law. We need to follow the law more strictly than we have been before because that's why Israel keeps getting conquered. That's why Israel is not living in the blessing that God intended is because we're not following the rules right. So their whole mission in life was to get people to follow the rules right. So some of them came to know Jesus, came to accept him and become Christians, but they had this core of being a Pharisee and adhering to the law. It doesn't mean that they just said, we no longer believe in that. They said, okay, we're taking Jesus. We believe that he's the promised Messiah, and we're going to add him into our knowledge, into what we're doing, into our thing. And so these some men are these Judaizers, and what they're doing is that they're saying, okay, we now understand through Peter's teaching, through Paul, we understand now that Gentiles get added into this. We're okay with that. But we believe that they need to become Jewish. They need to adopt Jewish traditions 
Jewish custom, Jewish law, in order to be grafted into this new thing. They're saying, hey, Jesus is bringing this new covenant and this new blessing, and, and we're, we're going to welcome them in now, but they need to really fully become one of us. So that's what these Judaizers are teaching. They're going around, they're going around teaching that you have to essentially convert to being a Jew in order to be grafted into this new covenant. And they believed that their position was biblical. They really believed it. They weren't, they weren't just trying to be jerks about this. Again, I know Pharisees get a bad rap, but they were well-versed in the law, okay? Pharisees, they constantly read from the Old Testament, specifically from Mosaic Law, the first five books of the Bible. They read that. They memorized it in most cases. They knew very well what the Bible said about the promises to the people of Israel, they knew this. A couple examples. I'm just going to read these to you. This is Genesis 17. Uh, it's verse 2, and then I'll skip to 6 and 7. Now, this is, this is the Lord speaking directly to Abraham, okay? The one they considered their forefather. He says, I will establish my covenant between me and you, and I will multiply you exceedingly. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings will come forth from you. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your descendants after you. So they, have re- they had recited that. They knew that. And so they knew what this, Abra- it's called the Abrahamic covenant. They would have known what that is. And then the very next section, again, Genesis 17, 9 and 10, reads like this. Now, this is what this covenant looks like to them in their minds. Okay, it's a covenant made, but there's a physical sign of this covenant. And this is what this next section talks about. Genesis 17, 9, 10. God said further to Abraham, Now, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. Thus shall my covenant be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. They would have known that very well. And they're saying, yes, you want to join in this blessing of God, this one where Jesus the Messiah is now fulfilling this? Absolutely. Here's the first thing you have to do. Be circumcised. So if you're a Gentile, you're an adult, Chances are you're not circumcised and you're coming into this thing and they're telling you, okay, it's great. You can accept Jesus. You can be one of us. But the first thing you have to do is now go be circumcised. Okay, men in the room, who would like to hear that as an adult, that now you need to go do this? That would really make it difficult for you to make that choice. Many of them are probably saying at this point, "Mm, no thanks then. If that's what I have to do, forget it. A lot of them are probably saying that. This is what they were. But how easy would it be for the Jews to take that literally? It'd be very easy for them to take that literally. Jesus was a Jew. Jesus was the promised Messiah. Their eyes had been opened to that. They see that, and they're just saying, hey, if, if, if these new people coming in want those blessings that have been promised to us throughout the generations, they have to do what we have to do. They have to adhere to the law, and they have to be circumcised to show that adherence in the flesh to that covenant. But here's the thing, though. Like just about everything else that happened back then, they missed the deeper meaning. 
they miss the deeper meaning behind the covenant and behind the circumcision, specifically the circumcision, because that's the biggest thing that they were pushing then. But they missed it. Let me read you a couple scriptures from Deuteronomy that kind of talk about this in a prophetic sort of way. Deuteronomy 10, 16 says, So circumcise your heart and stiffen your neck no longer. Circumcise your heart, they're saying. Then later on, this one I do have on the screen, Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. Moreover, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul so that you may live. So there's that meaning. It was always there. It wasn't hidden. They just never really saw what it meant in context. So they missed it. And this is what they're trying to discuss. What does it mean? Is it literal circumcision? Is it circumcision of the heart? What does this mean? So bottom line is that they take Paul and Barnabas, and they decide that they're going to head back up to Jerusalem, and they're going to settle this question because the Judaizers are starting to create mayhem there in in their burgeoning church in Antioch. And they're really spreading this, this idea that you have to be, that you have to adhere to the law and you have to be circumcised. So they say, we need to settle this. So brings us to our next scripture right here, Acts 15:4. When they arrived at Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all that God had done with them. So there, again, they go back up to Jerusalem and they're talking about Everything that we talked about last week, the missionary journey, the people that had converted, all the excitement and all the Gentiles that were, that were understanding who Jesus is now and were now coming to know him as their Lord and Savior. And this is an exciting thing, and it's a good time, and they're there, and they're explaining all this. And what happens, if you remember from last week and the week before, when things are going really well, what's the next thing that happens? Somebody comes in to throw a wrench in the works. So what we see here, that's Acts 15.4, the very next verse, Acts 15.5, says, but some of the sect of the Pharisees who had believed, okay, these, these Judaizer people I'm talking about, some of the sect of the Pharisees who had believed stood up saying, it is necessary to circumcise them and to direct them to observe the law of Moses. So there starts to be this dissension. Paul and Barnabas talking about, look at all the signs and wonders and the fantastic things that God has done to bring the Gentiles into the fold, into this new covenant. And then this sect saying, they absolutely have to be, have to be circumcised. This starts to be a problem. And so the apostles, the elders, uh, and the rest of the disciples, they start wrestling with this statement. So this is where they are. They start wrestling with this and debating back and forth because they need to decide which one of these things is true because one is all about grace and one is all about works. So which way is this going to go? So the very first person to speak up in this whole group, now remember, picture like a room like this. Half of you are the legalistic Judaizers saying, this has to happen. The other half of you are saying, no, this is all freedom and grace and, and we don't have to do those things anymore. We walked with Jesus. We heard him teach directly. We know that's not how that looks. And they're arguing back and forth. And this could have either split the church entirely, or it could have been something that helped to launch even more. So Peter's the first one that stands up, and I'll read this part to you. Acts 15, 7 to 9, says, After there had been much debate, okay, so they're debating back and forth, and now Peter stands up. Peter stands up. And he says to them, Brethren, 
You know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, testified to them, giving them the Holy Spirit just as he also did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. In other words, what he's saying is, hey, you know this because I reported it. Some of you have seen it. The Holy Spirit was poured out onto these Gentiles, meaning God is sanctioning this. This isn't something we just decided it'd be a good idea because we need more people in the seats. God is sanctioning this by pouring his Holy Spirit out on them, and he's reminding them of that because when you see the power of God in action like that, it's impossible to doubt. You have to say, okay, I've seen him do this. He's welcoming these people in. This is where Peter is, but... Peter then gets right to the heart of the matter. He delivers what would be considered like a closing argument in a, in a legal, in a courtroom. And he says something so powerful and so profound that they don't even know what to say. This is, we got this on screen, Acts 15, 10 to 11. Peter says this to them, So now, therefore, why do you put God to the test by placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way as they also are. He's saying, why? We never could adhere to these rules. You, Pharisees out there, you could never adhere to all those rules. Why are we going to insist that these new people coming into the body adhere to this? Are we just setting them up to fail because we've failed over all this time? Why would we put that kind of yoke around their neck? We believe we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way that they also are. Peter had walked with Jesus. Peter had spent time and hung out and heard from him directly. His word carried a lot of authority in that room. And so the result of this is Acts 15, 12. I'll read it to you. All the people kept silent. They had nothing to say. What do you say to a word like that? Because they're thinking, he's right. We've tried for centuries to, to follow these laws, and we blow it every day. Maybe there is something more to this. Maybe we need to rethink our stance on this. It says, all the people kept silent, and they were listening to Barnabas and Paul as they were relating what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. In other words, after Peter speaks, Paul and Barnabas get up, and they're saying, yes, we were there. We saw the Spirit pour out onto the Gentiles. We saw the signs and wonders that God was doing through us to them. There's absolutely no doubt that God entirely sanctioned the inclusion of the Gentiles into this thing. And then the very last thing, James stands up. James later on is called, um, he's kind of referred to as the Bishop of Jerusalem meaning he was sort of became the head of the Jerusalem church. Whether he was or not at this exact point, we don't know, but he was very important. He was one of the higher-up leaders of the church of Jerusalem. Remember from teaching way back, the church of Jerusalem was 20,000-plus at this point. That's a massive church. And James also happens to be the half-brother of Jesus. That's who James is. He's the half-brother of Jesus. 
And so he carries some serious authority when he stands up and he says this to them. Acts 15, 13 to 15, we got it up there. After they had stopped speaking, James answered, saying, Brethren, again that term for the believers, Brethren, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first concerned himself about taking from among the Gentiles a people for his name. With this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. Again, Simeon, if you remember Peter, his name is Simon Peter. They had that, that Jewish name, that Hebrew name, and then that Greek name. So Simon Peter. Simeon is just a, an alliteration of Simon. So Simeon, Simon, same guy. Simon Peter. So he has said, and he's just referring back to this, and he's, what he's doing here is he's going to refer back to Old Testament Scripture, not to argue his point, but to prove his point. So he goes back. The next section of Scripture is this. Now, I'll read this to you. Now, if you could see it, and you remember, this is in all caps. What does all caps mean? It means it refers to Old Testament Scripture, okay? It's either a direct quote or, or it's a paraphrase of Old Testament Scripture. In this case, it's from Amos, the book of Amos, and the book of Zechariah. When's the last time you heard Amos and Zechariah preached in church? Did you come here this morning thinking you were going to hear from Amos and Zechariah? We have now, so you can go out and you can say how smart you are. Here's what he says. He says, after these things, I will return, and I will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen, and I will rebuild its ruins. This is all the Lord speaking. And I will restore it so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord. The rest of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from long ago. Okay, again, prophetic scripture that they maybe didn't see at the time. Maybe they just read right past it, expecting something different. But James is saying, this is what's happening right now. These things that were prophesied back then. This is happening now, and it's happening with these people. We need to accept them and invite them in and make it easy for them to fulfill what God's plan was all along. This isn't a new plan. This has been the Lord's plan all along. So we need to make this happen and quit stepping in the way. So after all this, they talk a little bit more, and then James gets up again, and he issues his decision. Because again, remember, he is at this point, he is, if not the leader of that Jerusalem church, he's very, very high up. And he says this. Again, we have this on screen. Acts 15, 19 to 21. He says, Therefore, it is my judgment that we do not trouble those who are turning to God from among the Gentiles, but that we write to them, that they abstain from things contaminated by idols and from fornication and from what is strangled from blood. For Moses from ancient generations has in every city those who preach him since he is read in the synagogues every Sabbath. Okay, what does this mean? This part right here, for Moses from ancient generations has in every city those who preach him. What he's saying is that no matter where you are in the world, if you come to know Jesus, you're going to go into the synagogue and you're going to hear Moses preached. And so they know they're going to have heard that law. Even new believers will be exposed to what this law is. And he's saying here, we need to make sure that they understand that there are some rules. This isn't just a free-for-all, everything goes. Because the Gentiles, that's primarily what they were hearing. It's all about grace and freedom. And anything goes, you can do anything you want. 
but they've been doing anything they wanted for their entire history. So this has to be something different. So let's go back one just a little bit. Last screen. We write to them, so he, they want to get together, they want to write a letter that they can send out to these churches that are having these debates. Tell them that they abstain from things contaminated by idols, okay, idols, good idea, Jesus preached against idols, right? And from fornication, again, good idea, and from what is strangled and from blood. Why did they add that last part? We always tend to think that when the, the New Testament comes, all those dietary restrictions and things like that go away. All that thing you can't eat and can't eat. Maybe even Jesus taught what, what the Lord has cleansed, right? Peter heard that directly from the Lord a while ago. What God has cleansed no longer consider unclean. So why do they continue to include this? This is a conciliation towards those who are Jews by custom. Because the Jews in the audience would have been continuing with the sacrificial rites every single Sabbath. They were still doing sacrifice, and they considered the blood to be a holy and a sacred thing. And they were still continuing to do this. So what they're saying is we don't want to have the Jews in one side having sacrifice and doing those sorts of things, cleansing the blood and really understanding the significance and the holiness of the blood rituals. And then right across the street, we have Gentiles who are having a barbecue, okay, and they don't. They don't care what they eat or about the blood or anything like this, and it's going to cause more dissension. It's not about him saying, okay, we want them to stay away from things that are strangled and things that are from blood. He's saying, let's put this in there as a conciliatory gesture towards the Jews to make the peace. Okay, and eventually those things go away. We know that that didn't continue. But this is what they decide. We're going to send a letter saying, we agree on these points. So these are, they take everything and they just boil it down to this point or these few things. They're trying to make it very easy. And they realize, even the, the Judaizers, the Pharisees, the, the, the strict people in, in this group were realizing that this gospel is too important to squabble over those kind of details. We need to be able to set aside the legalism in our hearts so that the gospel of Jesus can spread. This is what Jesus commanded us to do. And the more we dig our heels in and the more we adhere to this law, the harder we make it for people to come to know Jesus. How many times do we do that? How many times do we dig our heels in on what's right and what's wrong? I can't believe you're wearing a Black Sabbath t-shirt to church. Oh my gosh. What does it matter if you know Jesus? But we put all these stumbling blocks in. You have to dress a certain way, act a certain way, listen to a certain kind of music. We have to put all these things in the way. Why? Just to satisfy some legalistic impulse that was bred into us from long ago? I don't know. But this is what they're saying is that that's not what Jesus came to give us. So they write this letter, they formulate this letter, and they send Paul and Barnabas, and they actually send two others. They send uh, Judas and Silas back with Paul and Barnabas, back to Antioch, with this letter. And they say, okay, this letter, this, you read this letter to them, and this is going to settle the whole issue. And that's exactly what they do. Acts 15, 23 to 29, I'll just read it to you, it says this. The apostles and the brethren who are elders to the brethren in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, 
who are from the Gentiles. Greetings. Since we have heard that some of our number to whom we gave no instruction have disturbed you with their words, unsettling your souls, it seemed good to us, having become of one mind, to select men to send to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, giving them that authority to also teach. Therefore, we have sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will also report the same things to you by word of mouth. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these essentials, that you abstain from things sacrificed to idols and from blood and from things strangled and from fornication. If you keep yourselves free from such things, you will do well. Farewell. That's the extent of the letter that they send to the church in Antioch to help get them focused on the same page. And what happens? The congregation in Antioch, they rejoice. They're loving this. Freedom, freedom, freedom. Yet, we still, it's not anything goes. It's not free for all. We do have some things that we need to to adhere to, which is fine. But there's so much freedom in that. I'd be rejoicing too if they came back and said, okay, good news, no circumcision. That thing, that's out. I'd be rejoicing too. And they're no different. They're doing the same thing. So worship team, you guys can go ahead and start uh, heading up this way. So we go back to the very beginning. What must a man do to be saved? That's the whole question that they were asking at the beginning. What must a man do to be saved? And it's an important question. The apostles and the elders defeated the best efforts of the legalistic side to impose law and ritual to this new freedom in Christ. This is a big thing. Had this gone the other way, okay, we would still be worshiping Jesus, but we would have all kinds of rules and all kinds of ritual that we had to do. That's not what Jesus came to give us. Jesus came to give us freedom. Freedom from that yoke, that oppressive yoke that nobody could hold on to. The law never saved anybody. Only Jesus can do that. Only Jesus can save. And we should jealously protect anything that starts to creep into our attitudes that's going to be legalistic or ritualistic in nature that's going to cause us just to do things out of rote because this is what we do. And some of those things, they bring death. They don't bring life and freedom. They bring death. And people see us with these attitudes and they say, why would I want Christ? Because you got to do all these things and you have these harsh attitudes. What happened to the love? So you remember Jesus had, he gave us two rules. Love the Lord your God and love one another. That's what he boiled it all down to, the greatest commandments, right? Why would we allow things to creep in? We shouldn't. But we see too much of that these days. See, when we do that, then people just look at Christianity as just just religion of another flavor. It's just another flavor. I've seen this before. And it's not an attractive thing. The gospel of Jesus Christ is attractive because of its freedom. Because of its freedom. Not anything goes, but freedom in him. 
There's only one way to be set free, and it's by grace and faith in Jesus alone. That's the only way to be saved. There's no other name by which we can be saved than just the name of Jesus. So if you've accepted that gift from Jesus and you call yourself a believer, you are saved without a doubt. But again, we should jealously protect that freedom and that grace that Jesus gave us. Do not allow legalistic attitudes to come in that are, number one, going to hurt your ability to have joy and peace, the fruits of the Spirit, peace, love, joy, patience, kindness. What comes against those? Law and legalistic attitudes. There's nothing that crushes those things faster. So let's live in the freedom of Christ, that freedom that first and foremost commands us to love the Lord our God and love one another. Let's operate in that, and let's see what a difference that makes in our community. Amen? So as we pray to close, as I pray to close, I want you to focus on what God is speaking to you through this. Is there a place in your life, a place in your heart, where maybe a little bit of legalistic attitudes have crept in? Is there some place where you have maybe been judging somebody because they don't do it like you do it? They don't do it like you think they ought to do it. They say a Christian that they're a Christian, but I hear the music they listen to. If you've allowed those things to creep into your heart, repent of those things now. Let God highlight them, repent of them, and say, Lord, I just want your freedom, and walk away from those things. Because that's what this Jerusalem Council was all about. What must a man do to be saved? It's not about anything we have to do. It's about Jesus. So Heavenly Father, Lord, we just thank you, number one, for sending Jesus to us so that we can live in the freedom and the grace that you offered us, that we can be grafted into the covenant, that you are our God and we are your people. And you will bless us and you will multiply us. We thank you that we are grafted into that through what Jesus Christ did. And Lord, we repent of any of those legalistic attitudes that have not only caused darkness in our heart, but maybe destruction to people around us. Lord, we want to be a reflection of who you are, not a reflection of who someone else tells us we should be. Only you, Lord. So Father, we just lift these things up to you. We ask that you highlight them in our hearts and just help us to set them aside and walk out of here in the freedom, free from the yoke and the unnecessary burdens that the world wants to put on us. Father, we love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. So as we go into our time of communion at the crosses, we have juice and bread and crackers and you can serve yourself at either station there or up front here, Gabe and I will have, we have wine and the bread and crackers. And we would love to serve you. But let's do this just thinking about what happened here. Thinking about that battle between freedom and the law. That is a constant struggle that we have. If you need help with this, after you take communion, we have prayer team members in the back who would love to pray through this with you and help you to be able to identify and set aside those things. But let's celebrate communion because of what Jesus did. 
we can walk away from that unnecessary burden that we were never meant to carry. Thank you, guys.
the sons and the daughters Let us sing our freedom Oh, 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 So great a mercy 
As we sing this next verse, I want you to really listen to the words and get excited about what Jesus did for you and what he's doing for you right now and what he will do for you in the future. So sing this with me. Then came the morning. Then came the morning that sealed the promise. Your buried body began to out of the silence the roaring lion declared the grave has no claim on me let's sing that again as loud as you can then came the morning that sealed the promise your buried body began to breathe
truth that you can hang on to. So thank you for the participation and thank you for just pouring out your heart to Jesus each and every week. We love you guys so much. And we're going to worship with another song and if, if you want to stay, by all means, please stay. But if you have to go, um, then we just bless you and your family. Be safe as you drive. I don't know how the roads look, but um, we hope to see you guys back here next week. Have a great week.
Señor. 